0: Hi friends, it's Susan Blackwell from The Spark File, your one-stop shop for creativity where our doors are open and if you smell something delicious, that's because Laura Camion and I have been cooking up something special, something designed to make a big difference in people's creative lives. Enter The Brave Creative, a free 5-day guided adventure to rediscover the vitality energy and possibility in your creative process whether you're a writer a performer a baker a candlestick maker navigating the creative process can be a bear but never fear there's power in numbers at the spark file so let's link arms and make the trip together it's may 13th through 17th 7 p.m eastern less than one hour per day and if you can't join live don't worry about it. You can watch the replay. Join us by going to thesparkfile.com to register. And hey, if you're not familiar with the Sparkfile, first of all, welcome to the podcast. Secondly, we work with hundreds of creatives of all different kinds who are ready to take their next big step. We help folks fear less and create more in a community that is so fun and vibrant. And if you have joined us before, know that we are going deep with the brave creative. So buckle up, Buttercup. It is going to be an awesome adventure. Go to thesparkfile.com to register, but do it soon because it all starts May 13th. thesparkfile.com. Register now. The Sparkfile podcast may contain profanity and other adult content. Please use your discretion.
1: when i bump into something that inspires me i dump it in my spark
0: To to be something that i want to make or how
1: i want to be i pump it in my spark fire. i jump into my spark
0: Welcome to the Spark File. This is your one-stop raindrop for creative inspiration. Uh, Yeah. Hi, I'm Laura Camion. I'm Susan Blackwell. If you're joining us for the first time, welcome. Here's the deal,
1: friends. We are makers who make all sorts of things. If you're like us and you're making stuff all the time, then you know already that sometimes the wellspring of inspiration can run a little dry. But we
0: got you back. We are on the lookout for fresh ideas, images, and inspiration that spark our creativity Mm -hmm. and pique our curiosity, Mm -hmm. things that hopefully inspire us all to get off our asses and make something like this podcast. Or an app. Or a piece of custom-made wood furniture (gasps) that is an absolute
1: perfect fit. For that space yes. that you have. I want. Right? I want. That's right. So every episode, we're going to reach into The Spark File. We're going to exchange some sparks. And then we're going to talk to some folks who spark us, too.
0: And if you're not careful, you might just catch The Spark for your next novel. Mm-hmm. So without further ado, let's open up
1: the, the Spark File. So my spark my spark is a little different in, in a variety of ways. Um, but I tend to like, um, I'm also a screenwriter. So I, I will fold away ideas that I'm like, Ooh, there's some interesting stuff in there. I don't know what, sometimes like scientific things that I know nothing about, but can sort of steal the very basics of, um, or psychology terms, like these things sort of like intrigue me. I'm sure I use them incorrectly. But I still take joy out of my new interpretation of, of official things. So, again, have we mentioned we're not experts? Oh, God, we're um, not experts. We're not scientists. We're not journalists. <laughs> we like to take things and make shit out of it. But, so that's yeah. that's it. That's right. Um, so my spark has to do – It it was started by an article that I read in Time magazine. And it was written by Danny Shapiro. And Danny – wrote a book called Inheritance. And this book, I have not read, but I've read the, this article <laughs> first of all. <laughs> let me just say I haven't read the book. Um, the article though that she wrote for Times sparked As Dan- a thousand Danny's sparks. Danny's a lady. Yes. Oh. Danny's a lady. Okay. D-A-N-I. Oh, with a little heart over the eye. With a heart over the eye. Um. Danny's a lady. And so her article alone, A, mean, you know, it led me to like, I'm going to try to read that book. But The article alone was like, "Wow, shoot! There's a lot of sparks in here for me." Um, But in a nutshell, in this um, article, Danny shares that um, like one night, a year or so ago, her husband was like, "Hey, I'm going to order one of those DNA kits. Do you want me to get you one? Like, this will be fun. This just to be." And she said she gave it about yeah, like ten seconds thought. She was like, "Yeah, that sounds great." that's the extent of her like really soul searching on whether she wanted this information. And I think that's happening to a lot of people who are, are um, ordering these DNA kits. They're just like, this will all be fun and games where we find out like the 14 different countries that our family members Mm -hmm. have lived in, but it's a little bit more than that. So um, she, what she knew about herself and her family history is that she was Eastern European Jewish On both sides of her family. Mm -hmm. And lo and behold, the results come in from the DNA test. And she discovers that she was only half Jewish, as it turns out, someone was identified as a first cousin of hers um, that she'd never heard of. And it turns out that her father, who she had been very, very close to, who passed away when she was only 23 in a car accident, was not her biological father. She had no idea of it. The family had no mention <sighs> Sorry, of it. Sorry, you can't see this because this is, uh, there's no <laughs> visual image, but my jaw just went, huh? Uh, what? Uh. I mean, there's so many things that, that you know, happened with her, and I'll get back to her, um, but this led me down a little path of finding out more of, like, how frequent it is that people are discovering things like you know, just skeletons in the family closets. Oh. Infidelity. Um, I read about another woman who got a, a kit back who's like her dad's not her dad, and her mom was like doubling down on yes he is, yes he is. Oh my um, god! But she talked to her aunt and a few other people and saying like, hey, did my mom ever date like someone who was Italian? Because oh this is god. saying I'm I'm from Italy. And oh, my God, her aunt was like, actually, your mom's prom date was Italian. It's this guy.
0: (laughs) Oh, (laughs) Oh my God. Exactly. So you're like, oh, shit. Like, I can imagine. Can you imagine? I I can imagine like you have those things in your life that you're like, I'm so glad (laughs) those things that you would say if you're a person of a certain age, I'm so glad the internet and social media didn't exist. I'm so glad that that I didn't post that, that that's not on the record. I have things in my life like that. I'm so glad that people don't have easy access to those little pieces of my life. Now imagine having a secret like that. That's right. And you're like, it's okay. I can carry this to my grave. And then one day your daughter, you're sitting at the, you know, in the, (laughs) at the breakfast nook with your daughter. And she's like, so,
1: oh my god so mom god. yeah Technology, Why don't you tell me about your prom date since it turns out he's my dad <laughs> seriously and if you go back through time if you like nerdy history as i do um i mean just the number of stories that get told in film and and tv and otherwise that are based on a family skeleton a history of some kind um, yes of course but then also historically if you are into um Royalty and just the number of literally wars that have been fought over, um, people, rumors over people like not being true bloodline. So like rumors of an affair, this child is a bastard oh, sure. that, do you know what I yes, mean? Yes. And fighting over the crown and whatnot. Um, Oh. so it's it so goes 23 andme could have resolved that just like that honestly 23 and ancestry.com these people are um, it's changing it's changing a lot of things in regard to that but so back to Danny really quickly the interesting thing about Danny's story and others I, I think of a certain age is that um like her mom it wasn't as though her mom had an awareness of keeping a secret from Danny her mom, was like a lot of people who had some assisted, some help getting pregnant during these years. Um, Her mom believed in her heart that her dad was Danny's father. And so this little rabbit hole. Really? Yeah. There was this thing. um, It was called assisted reproduction. And as it turns out, in this time period like 1961 and you have to think about for a good period of time being infertile was so, so stigmatized oh, yeah. for men yeah. and women I guess but men yeah. even from like when men came back from war after World War Two, yeah um no one wanted to add to their troubles by sort of blaming them for maybe not being able to have kids or being infertile because there was probably chemicals they came across, PTSD, um, actual, you know, physical disabilities, like all of it played into, um, a generation of men who had difficulty, um, had their little, their sperms had some difficulty. So no one wanted that to be, um, you know, to call out the men for that being a problem. Uh, oh, also you have to layer in the religious, like it's a responsibility to have kids. Um So if you went in to get some assisted help, they had a name for it, confused artificial insemination. What? This is fuck? intentional. So they would confuse the issue by saying, um, so we want you to, you know, have sex before you come in. Uh-huh. Um, when you come in we're going to inseminate you you know with some sperm uh-huh. um your husband your husband's sperm and perhaps some other sperm were mixed in you're going to go home and you're going to have sex again so it's some pl- some plausible de- deniability basically So we're
0: going to give you like a sperm sandwich of That's right. So here's 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 yeah. your husband's sperm. That's right. You know cuz you had sex with him. That's right. We're going to introduce other sperm Spermies, and then you're gonna get that Dagwood sandwich top piece of bread with your
1: husband's sperm sperm. again. So, most likely, if you're pregnant, I mean, it's probably your husband's sperm. What do they call it again? Confused Confused artificial insemination. I have never heard of such a thing, completely intentional. And then they would go a next level with it, and when the blood Test came back saying you were pregnant, they would say to you, actually, by the looks of it, this is crazy, but it looks like you were pregnant when you came in here. So I'm glad we did this, but you're well on your way. Good luck to you. So basically, it was a was it a
0: way to alleviate the stigma that it potentially wasn't no. the the father's That's sperm right. that inseminated that that kicked off the pregnancy. That's right.
1: So the father couldn't... That's could, a dog and pony
0: show. Yeah. So that people could feel like, oh, we did it. This
1: and Am I understanding this is that our, correctly? Yes. And feel like this child is 100% ours, yours and mine. Mm. Um, They could feel, by being told that you probably were pregnant when you came in here, you could actually forget that you didn't have quote, a quote unquote normal pregnancy. Like you could go on telling yourself a story that you actually got pregnant in a perfectly normal way it's your husband's sperm oh, you're you don't of. have to like you don't have to deal with like but
0: then that little that detail of you coming in and
1: saying well it looks like you were pregnant already that's confused like, that's confused and intentional and then they didn't keep the records so <gasps> all those records are oh, gone god that whole they didn't keep the records bullshit right didn't do it there
0: was a flood in the basement of the no. record Storage facility
1: just did not do it, and uh, so
0: they didn't keep the records of the source of the the, donor like we'll call it the baloney in the sperm sandwich.
1: They didn't keep the records of that, yeah. And even that sperm that was inseminated, problematic, yeah. That donor doesn't even know. Do you know what I mean? Like, they so the history (sighs) this got me going a little bit on the history of this stuff, um, the history leads back to literally like a woman coming in. Um, this is after the war and, and a guy with a doctor with like six, um, associates learning medical students learning with him. Um, and the woman couldn't get pregnant. And so they took sperm from one of the six guys in the room and inserted it into the woman. They say they chose the most handsome, the tallest and the most handsome. And, um, she got pregnant from that but again like told her hey you look at that that's crazy you were pregnant when you came in here um but they didn't even you know like again no record of it like it's just kind of going back and and some hearsay of so who was that guy he was just the best looking guy in the room i guess we don't know this so, is so deeply weird Again, can I say that I'm not getting, you know, I'm sure there's so much more information here. But the point of it was um, I was intrigued, of course, by the history of that and, like, you could get, you can go down an entire medical rabbit hole mm-hmm. um, in terms of that. But Danny Shapiro talks about... Um, the consequence of her finding out and not knowing that she was the child of a donor for her whole life. So Mm -hmm. she was 54 when, when she found out. And so she's like, there's the obvious, like, um, medical for my entire life. I've been telling my doctor's certain things in a definitive way that i believe are true about my family's medical history but she's like then i've had kids and one of my my children had a rare disease when he was younger Uh, that might have been hereditary medical history and she's like it absolutely is not hereditary none of that is in our in our family Mm -hmm. line so you know why you don't know you don't know, but she talks about something that's like more difficult to quantify. And that is the psychological, um, effects of this non-disclosure and secrecy. She said she grew up feeling other in a way like different from her family. And some of the ways were obvious, like she didn't look like them. And because it was such, of course,
0: you know, I'm yeah. just, I'm such an
1: idiot. And you may have said
0: this, <laughs> She was inseminated with this sperm sandwich, the confused sperm sandwich, but it doesn't mean any of her
1: siblings were. Of course they weren't. Right. Oh, fuck. Right. And her family, Jewish on both sides, Eastern European Jewish, and she had blonde hair. fuck. So she said she would get like some of the elders in the community would look at her and say things like, God, we could have used you. When the Nazis were around, we could have sent you to market to get bread and no one would have questioned you. (laughs) I mean, just the layered of like this culture and feeling like she was different somehow. Um, And so she was constantly told she didn't look Jewish. Um, And she says, the air in my childhood home was thick with the unsaid. I felt it. I picked up on it, but I had no name for it. The psychoanalyst Christopher Bolas has called this the unthought known. It's what we absolutely know, but we cannot allow ourselves to think.
0: Ah, there's oh. your spark.
1: There's my spark. Oh my God. I just was like,
0: what? Say it, will you say it unthought known? Say it again. The
1: unthought known.
0: Okay. And the definition?
1: Well, she defines it yeah. as... Something we absolutely know, but we cannot allow ourselves to think.
0: We absolutely know it, but we cannot even not speak it, just think it. Think it. It's, un- not, thought, it's not It's no, not unspoken.
1: It's unthought. Oh, the spark thickens. Mm-hmm. And to me, like, so as a writer, I just my mind went to you like, oh man, what are the um like August Osage County came to me right away of just like some knowledge that there were wrong relationships you know happening among family members un, unthought or um all my sons um the arthur miller play where you know he on some level knows it's his faulty air airplane parts that got his son killed in the war but it just can't you cannot allow yourself to go there and I think about it like you and I just had a conversation this morning about um whether I knew something like I got married in my 20s right, right, right. very briefly super brief um all good respect and love to everyone but I You asked me, like, do you think you knew? Like when I asked you
0: specifically when you were walking down the Mm -hmm. aisle, like in the days leading up to it, did Mm -hmm. you know that you it was not right?
1: Yeah, and it was a thought. It was the I did not allow myself to think, and I just I don't know that. What's the name of it again? It's the unthought known.
0: Damn it.
1: Do you think there are things that you know that you don't allow yourself to think?
0: I do. I I know for a fact in my life there are things that I have known that I did not permit myself to think about or if I did think about them, I would not, I could not give them the import. Like I could not really fully... I could not. I, I don't know what the verb mm-hmm. is like. Indulge the 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 weight mm-hmm. of them because they they were so crushing. Mm-hmm. And when they finally rose to the surface of conscious yes. thinking, yes, um, it was. It required a lot of care. It required a lot of therapy. Um, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I've I've lived it. I've lived where it's sort of like it just is sort of swimming in. It's, so, it's a weird combo platter because the, what you're talking about, she really couldn't have known. No. Um, but she felt something. But she felt something she felt that she could something. not think or verbalize. That's right. And Something's I've had things happened. that I have uh, it's just so easy to just kind of tuck in a drawer in my brain. Mm-hmm. And I know it's in that drawer, but I sort of can't. I'm not ready. I don't have the... I don't have the capacity yet to meet it on the conscious level and process right, it. Right. Um but when the unthought known then becomes the thought known and then yes. becomes the expressed known. Yes. It's a it's a the that's a big life event. It is a big, a big life, life event. event and spark file. I I see it's so funny because I was like where are we headed? This is like a mystery. What's going to be revealed? <laughs> it is the source of fantastic creative raw material. Holy crap! That's it is right. the source of really. Sometimes, sometimes it's too hot to the touch mm-hmm. for many years mm-hmm. to, um, to even. Uh, say it out loud let alone write it or say it out loud in front of another human being that's right but if if you're lucky and you live long enough and you process it enough i believe i really do firmly believe no matter what you're making it can live in those things that you make that you make and sometimes a real like a real firestorm like this can become the source material for your greatest work That's right. Whether it's fiction or non, or a dance piece or uh, an article in Newsweek or whatever it is.
1: That's right. I looked a little further into like the definition of it and people define it in different ways. But, um, but some people think that the unthought known is something that we already know, but we don't know that we know it yet. Mm -hmm. So, and the, there are several ways to excavate this knowledge. Mm. So whether it be a deserve level mm-hmm. that we don't, that we're not conscious that we've created for ourselves, you know, therapy and other processes can help you excavate like, Oh, I didn't know that was there. There it is yes. in my brain. Yes. I had some yeah. sort of, so you can take a guide
0: can help like a sharp, can help bring it up. That's
1: right. Yeah. And meditation, et cetera. But for her, it really was, um, it really was some knowledge that she was different in some way but she couldn't put words it to it not. and who could have imagined like oh i think it was confused, confused. artificial insemination <laughs> like you know where how would you come up with that so um yeah interesting interesting i just think it's a, it's a, for me it's a spark on many levels and you can go in a, a bunch of different directions with it but back to danny And our DNA testing, which I'd never, you know, I'd never given a ton of thought to. But now, another consequence of where we are with this. So people are finding out deep, dark family secrets. um, But also, sperm donors who donated sperm on the condition of anonymity and understanding that this, whatever child is born of this, um, I'm not responsible for it. No. And they'll never know. And I'm just trying to make, I'm just trying to pay for my college tuition. That's right. Which (laughs) as we know, props to anyone who can do that. Dude, jerk off in a cup all day long. (laughs) Pay your way. (laughs) Hey, props. So, um, now we find ourselves in a position where a number of things are happening, but one is all of these men, like Danny says, it took her 36 hours to find her real biological father. You are fucking kidding me. Nope. And he was <gasps> not wanting to be found. So all of
0: these people that were just like, "I'm just trying to pay my way through school." That's right. I'm just trying to get money for knock, groceries. Knock, knock,
1: knock on the door. Oh, Hi. Thirty six hours. Thirty six hours later. Wait she, a second. What the? Because fuck? Because you see on your family tree who the first cousin is, you can contact that person oh saying, "Hey, da da da, you connect uh, those dots."
0: Yeah. So funny the implications of this DNA testing and how readily available it is now. Yep uh, helping solve murders. Yes. I was say yes, killer. Was Sorry. To did that.
1: I jump? No, <laughs> that's great. That's exactly like these consequences. So now the FBI has access to these databases. So your crimes are being solved. Other deep, dark secrets are Mark. going to come out. Oh, God, tell me more. No, that's, I don't have much more on that. Honestly, I do. I you, didn't, do are you, you, I didn't you know, dig. I love, I, I really, uh,
0: am a true crime, true crime, enjoyer, And, uh, the whole, that whole, the Golden State Killer, who was elusive for yep. so long, yep. and this is beautifully written about in Michelle McNamara's book, May yep. She Rest in Peace. I did not know her, but I deeply respect the work that she did in the world. Um, it is amazing to me that this criminal, this uh, insane, violent person who eluded, eluded like so... So many different bureaus of investigation, the police and like so many people, so many different jurisdictions were trying to catch this person for so long. And the thing that finally brought him down
1: was some cousin. Yep. Third cousin. They found a third cousin. Third cousin. A third
0: cousin. And they tracked it through that. Yep. And- And they fucking got that guy allegedly i guess he has oh. i guess he hasn't gone through his trial right. yet but he did, he did it come on
1: allegedly yeah and they're saying don't come for me gold state killer I don't have this exact information Shocker. but <laughs> um but they say like in the next 2 to 3 years like 80% of our population will have be mapped. Uh, will like, be able to be mapped to a, a second or a third cousin so you might as well have a map to it all you know?
0: So even though I'm like, I'm never
1: doing that for DNA right. test, That's I'll right. do it for
0: my dogs. I, I'm curious. Yeah. I want oh, my dog cute. kitty bunny. Yeah. I really want to, I want to know. She's just trying to take a nap. She's like, leave me out of this. I want to <laughs> know what kitty's uh, yeah, DNA where they... is mm-hmm. um, because mm-hmm. she's such a, like, she looks like a big chihuahua with the ears of a jackalope. I think Aww. she's part jackalope. That's our nymphs kitty so bunny. So you could find out for sure if she is part
1: jackalope. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but she you could find the the donor but you're
0: saying even if i choose not to participate in that's anything right. like that it doesn't matter because if my cousin becky does hi becky, hi, becky. then um
1: it doesn't matter that's right then i'm A- part A- of the A- map. you can web. be found and for these guys who donated sperm the consequences oh are, of things so so i read about this woman who was like my husband before we got married needed to tell me needed to tell me that he had donated sperm um you know back in college wait needed like he had an emotional imperative or he was but
0: legally mandated to what do you mean
1: yeah like like he i think emotionally needed gotcha. to okay. um and she said thank god he did because of course 2 years into their marriage phone call um and they're like, this person wanting to find you. Yes, wow. and since then she's like, turns out my husband has eight children who have oh. now sought him out, oh. and she's like, if I if he hadn't told me before we got married, oh. I can imagine I would be flipping the f out. Oh my god! And P.S. S- also spark.
0: P.S. All of this is such great <laughs> material as plot points Christ. in all sorts of TV shows and murder mysteries. And as it becomes more and more of a regular occurrence. That's right. Like, it's entirely plausible. It's totally plausible. It's not sort of like, oh, that's so one, you know, that's like one in the lottery. Yeah. Apparently not.
1: Yeah.
0: Oh, what was I going to say? Uh, so it's a spark in that way. I can't remember. I lost my train of thought. Okay. If it comes to you. Spark, spark, spark. So sparks boom, are boom, popping boom. Off.
1: she's so, so, you know, people are finding out and, Again, she's someone who knew her husband had donated sperm. Oh, oh, I know what I was going to say. Uh, Another potential plot point is you could say you had donated sperm.
0: Mm -hmm. You could say, like, Mm -hmm. before we get married, babe, I think you need to know that, I, you know, to get through college I donated a lot of sperm. Yes. And that could be a lie. You could have, you could have secret families. You could have eight secret families. You could have a girl on every port that you and you could say, "Babe, I I don't know." uh, It's just donating sperm. Donated
1: sperm created that human. There's another plot point. Holy shit! I'm not going to
0: do anything with it, but you are welcome to take it and make it. Take it and make it. I'm not going to do it.
1: There's another thing. So (laughs) this is so juicy. Digging, digging, digging. I love your digging. So the U.S. has no limit on the amount of babies that can be created from a person's sperm oh no just as comparison oh no kissing cousins oh no girl more than kissing cousins so the just as a reference taiwan mandates that only one child you can donate sperm but one child can be created that with it that is reasonable sensible sensible the netherlands they cap it at 20 Twenty children. U.S. Could has be created. A no nothing. No in limits, place because so, they
0: did not foresee this science fiction future. But how come Taiwan foresaw it and we did not?
1: Hang on, I'm gonna say a controversial, <sighs> you know, they sort of thing. They, they knew. We live in a the capitalist United States world. Knew. There's big, big money in this, in <gasps> they women knew. buying sperm. that point. They knew. And So they're they knew like, all along. If you, if you like. Try to if you rein this in and limit the amount of money people can make from this, you know, ugh, that's not a capitalist thing to do. I'm not down on capitalism, but I'm just saying. Um, wow. Uh, so you we feel like there was for, a choice there wasn't gotcha, Yeah, gotcha. yeah. And until it becomes an issue, but and they. They say, as I read through, you know, a million things, but they say that they're even worried that this type of, like, now that they can't ensure anonymity, they may see a lot less donors. Oh, but it, I want you to just imagine Maybe this. you get paid more. Or
0: maybe it's easier to make your
1: way through Ooh, college.
0: wow. You could get paid if you're, more. If your semen is at a premium,
1: but that here's almost rhymes. the thi- Semen at a premium. Um, Here's the interesting thing. So I knew someone who was shopping for sperm as you say. Sure. They wanted to <sighs> she would she wanted, she wanted to have, have a, a baby. baby and she was going to do she it went, like she, a modern independent woman. That's right. And she went and you get to read about all mm-hmm. these different people. And do you get to read how many times their sperm has been used no because we're not tracking it dude if you lived in manhattan that's right you see where
0: k- keep talking sorry i feel no, like you are you go you, you go no girl. so you live in manhattan you become <laughs> impregnated by uh uh anonymous sperm donor and there's no legislation to limit how many deposits but, this person can
1: make but so they are anonymous but if you go in to one of these facilities you get to choose you have some choices no, no, no.
0: you can choose but everybody's going for like the hot the premium Six properties foot right five
1: doctor S- went to MIT Harvard, Harvard graduate. graduate yes exactly and so
0: they have a bunch of, there's a bunch of, let's say that guy's name is Joe. Mm-hmm. There's like a bunch of little Joes and Josephines right. running around. His, That's this, right. This progeny, like an unknown right. progeny. And what if
1: they might all the go to the same is a school? Small place. They might all end up back at Harvard. You know what I mean? Uh, who knows? Wow. But there are no, currently no limits on that. So. Wow. So, as I was like, I guess you know i, I this I, I like reading about people who have different experiences than me because it like just forces me to think so differently about things um this this concept of like, if you are a child of a sperm donor, when is it appropriate to talk to your child about that? When do they need to know? And what are those ramifications? Like when they're dating someone or thinking about marrying someone, they need to share that information and say, Ooh, I'm the child of a sperm donor and you're the child of a sperm donor. Do we need to find out? I mean, if you're being super responsible about it, do you not want to find out? Do you have to disclose? Just in case. I, I don't know. And that's just like, medically but when i was reading um i read some things that um that danny had written let me find them about um what it's like for people who have like maybe they know that they were born of a sperm donor um but this this danny wrote about how she was so close to the man she thought was her biological dad, mm-hmm. and yet they had different interests and things. But they were they were tight. Like she didn't have any concept in her mind that she that wasn't her dad. Mm-hmm. Um, when she met the man who was her biological dad, mm-hmm. she was like, "Holy shit! The books on his shelves are the same as the books That's on my, my daddy. shelves." the things he's interested in are the things. And there's no possible way that like she had no contact with him. Was her father still alive? No, her Mm. dad. So she never got to talk to her, the the man who raised her as her father. Mm -hmm. And that way she got, Um, she got two dads, but that's complicated. But so I read this, um, in the Atlantic. This is, um, another person writing about this experience. She said there's a name for that feeling, that curiosity, that sense of a missing piece, mm. that anxiety that some dormant aspect of themselves might one day show up and have no traceable roots. In 1964, the psychologists Eric Wellish and H.J. Sance, who studied and treated troubled adoptees, understood the lack of knowledge of one's genetic background to induce a state of what they called genealogical bewilderment. Wow. And this is, this is, they explained that like not knowing one's ancestry could stand in the way of developing a clear mental image of one's body, which they argued was necessary to developing a full sense of identity. Hmm. So, genealogical bewilderment was another thing that struck me like uh, talk about just just being privileged to know and feel confident this is my mother this is my father mm-hmm. and these are the people yeah, i come that from is a privilege i i it hadn't occurred to me what someone might live with if they are adopted or if they are born of sperm donor that's what a number of people have said um, psychologically, what the impact it can have on you is that you you don't get to fully form a vision of yourself or an understanding of yourself because there's a missing piece that, you, that just remains a question mark. It's an
0: interesting, I have a few thoughts. I think it's like a super potential interesting character trait for like a character mm-hmm. if you're writing something. Mm-hmm. But I also just want to take a moment. I'm so grateful. Mm. I'm grateful for, uh, there's so many different, every day I sort of practice, I, I spend some time thinking about what I'm grateful for. And that manifests in a lot of different ways. But here's a fresh, here's a hot, fresh yeah. take based yeah. on the spark that you're sharing. I am grateful that I, I think, unless uh, <laughs> I, I, I do, I look like my parents. <laughs> I am grateful that I have this sense of that's a privilege to have that to have that sense of knowing Mm -hmm. and the groundedness that comes with that Mm -hmm. i mean we have other issues but of course uh, but But i that's not a question that's a privilege i didn't even think of it till this moment i'm grateful for that
1: privilege yeah yeah i think it's like this this again uh danny's book is called inheritance and and it's I intend to read it, but even this article that she wrote was so inspiring and led me down like four different rabbit holes. Wow. I love it. Yeah. yeah. And that is the spark. That's some sparks, folks. Oh, That's all on the table now I'm, to be used and... Use it. Abuse yep. it. Yeah, I was going to say <laughs> used and abuse it. I'm like, wait, PC. Is that PC? I don't think so. The spark button! I'm crazy excited about this
0: spirit that i'm I about can't wait. to share with you okay um this is this is the line that's in my spark file mm-hmm. i just want to share this with you okay once i was meeting a man in the lobby of the waldorf astoria hotel on the phone before the meeting he said i don't know what you look like how will i know it's you i said to him you must be kidding The sources for this spark include Wikipedia. Thanks, Wikipedia. Um, Thanks, Wikipedia. There's a tribute video that I watched. There's a datalounge.com thread. Uh, There's a great article from Cleveland Magazine by a writer named Michael Gill and also some real live human beings who uh, contributed to this. Okay. So I grew up in Dayton, Ohio, and there's a chain of pizza restaurants called Marion's Pizza. And when Mm -hmm. I'm home visiting... My family meets there at least once when I visit. Um, I love Marion's. I love their pizza. And once you're inside, all Marion's sort of look and smell the same. They have like these faux brick arches or maybe they're real brick. I don't know. They have great pizza. And on the walls of Marion's are hundreds of pictures that are signed of all of these Broadway TV and movie stars from the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Aww. And in all the pictures, they're eating pizza and drinking <laughs> big pitchers of soda and just living it up at mm. Marion's. And whenever I go home to visit my family, and we inevitably go to Marion's, I love to like just look at, just stand for a while and mm. look at the walls and see the photos of. A lot of people that I recognize and a lot of people that I don't, like Burt Reynolds and Lonnie Anderson and Henry Winkler and Billy Crystal and Hugh Downs, these are all photos of the leading actors of the Kenley Players. Oh, what? That's right. The Kenley Players? The Kenley Players. So in 1978, when I was nine years old, which I think is fourth grade, is nine fourth grade? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. My parents took me to Memorial Hall in Dayton, Ohio, which was this big bar. It was literally a hall that was made in a memorial to those who had served in wars. Oh. And it was a great big barn of a theater space. Mm-hmm. And it held oh, 2,000 or 2,500 seats. It wow. It was big. And. My parents took me to see The King and I mm. and I have no recollection of who played the king but Roberta Peters who's a coloratura soprano was playing the lead who I think is named Anna Anna I um, don't know but she was great and I will never forget that show or her dancing around in that mm-hmm. giant ball gown mm-hmm. and it really was one for the spark files oh. when when I get asked in interviews like when did you first know you wanted mm. to uh, be a performer I would say watching Sesame Street and wanting to be one of those kids on Sesame Street and also watching The King and I.
1: Wow. That
0: production of The King and I was produced by Kenley Players and the person behind Kenley Players was named John Kenley. Okay. Here's a massive understatement. John Kenley was an interesting person. Okay. OMG. He was born John Kremchak in 1906, in Denver, Colorado, he was born to a Slovakian immigrant family who ran saloons. And mm. as Prohibition moved through the United States, the family kept relocating wow. to stay sort of ahead of the wave of Prohibition. Oh, interesting! And they ended up uh, settling in Erie, Pennsylvania. So, at the age of four, in their Russian Orthodox church, uh, I don't know, I, I don't a priest or uh, whoever the figurehead was of this church. I guess with a flair for the dramatic, made John Kenley a soloist singer. Four years old. And he sang in both English and Russian. No way. So little John Kenley wasn't particularly masculine, but it sounds like he wasn't bullied either because he could always what he called outstunt the other kids. He could do these remarkable physical things and he would imitate like h- highly physical stuff that he saw in movies. So I, when he says outstunt, I think he means like literally like stuntman shenanigans. Stunt. Yeah. yeah. So after graduating high school at 16, he moved to Cleveland and he landed a job as a choreographer for a burlesque show. At sixteen. At sixteen. Okay. And he said he didn't really but I mean a burlesque show with just like like scantily dressed yeah. ladies. Yeah. And he says that he taught the girls silly simple routines. And as he taught them, he got pretty good at it. But it also sounded like he knew that people really just wanted to go there to see naked ladies. So they didn't really care how tight the choreo was, (laughs) but it gave him a chance to lead people. That's right. Yeah. So three years (laughs) later after that, he moved to New York City and he landed a role as a dancer slash contortionist slash acrobat in something called the Greenwich Village Follies which weirdly were at, I think, held at a theater in the 50s. Like, <laughs> but they were called the Greenwich Village Follies. If you don't this live in New York, those are two di- very different locations. Um, and when he signed his first contract as a performer, he altered his name. I think at the, the person, the producer of the Greenwich Village Follies may have nudged him. He altered his name from John Kremchak to John Kenley. So throughout the 20s, he played the vaudeville circuit, singing, dancing, and doing impressions of... People like Al Jolson, Maurice Chevalier, Beatrice Lilly, and Ethel Barrymore. So he did impressions of men and women. Yeah. In addition to singing and dancing and all that jazz. And then from 1928 to 1940, he worked as an assistant to the producer Lee Schubert of the famed Schubert Organization. Yeah. And one of his jobs was that he was a reader and he read Approximately 1,000 scripts in that time. And he discovered, as a reader, such hits as Lillian Hellman's first play, The Children's Hour, mm. and William Soroyan's The Time of Your Life. And he said even if a writer or their plays weren't to his taste, like even if he was like, I don't really love it, he knew what would be successful. Wow. He knew what certain audiences would respond to, even if it wasn't for him. So, um, when he was working for the Schubert's, he was also, it was that old, like golden age Mm -hmm. of Broadway and theater Mm -hmm. where he was also, John had a hand in casting their plays. Unbelievable. Yeah. So he was also. Wait, where was, which,
1: where were the plays that he was casting? Well, the Schubert's,
0: I don't know. I, I, I think the Schubert's were even at that time, like big Broadway producers. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I assume theater owners as they are now, Mm -hmm. but I'm not sure if he was casting in addition to New York plays also tours, which were very big at that time. Mm -hmm. Um, Wow. But he, it strikes me even as a young person, John Kenley was one of those and there, they are always around those sort of whip smart smarties who Mm -hmm. kind of, (laughs) even at a very young age are at the center of it all. Yeah. Um, and he knew everybody because of all his work in those offices and casting and stuff like that. He knew all the actors and he knew people on the production side and the producers. And he had this crew of friends and they would walk down Schubert Alley. Oh. Like with his, and they started calling themselves the Kenley Players. Wow. This group started calling them. So eventually, when he started his own theater, it began as a Summerstock theater. Uh, in Deer Lake, Pennsylvania. It was a formerly a Greek Byzantine church, and he turned Ugh. it into this community theater, the Summerstock mm. Theater, rather. Mm-hmm. Um, and Deer Lake, Pennsylvania, apparently is where the coal barons and their like people that had made mm-hmm. a lot of money off coal, that's where they summered. So he started a theater there, and he called it the Kenley Players.
1: And it was like summertime only, summer yeah. stock. Summerstock. Summerstock, yeah. And eventually mm-hmm.
0: I think they did... Uh, I think it was called winter stock. I think that they did something else. But, okay. but yeah, predominantly summer stock. So all of this was interrupted by World War II. Mm. And during World War II, he joined the Merchant Marines and he served aboard the SS Andrew Furuseth as the purser pharmacist's mate. Wow. And apparently, his practical jokes and quirky humor aboard the ship, earned him the nickname the Storm Petrel of the Merchant Marines. A Storm Petrel is a kind of bird. I don't know what that indicates, but it sounds like he was quite a little prankster. He also worked, uh, when he was not in um, in the military, serving during World War II, he, did a lot, he had a lot of jobs throughout his time there. It wasn't like a straight path mm-hmm. to a rising star in showbiz. He worked as an assistant, and he could type It was something crazy. It was like 120 words per minute from stenography.
1: No Do you kids know what that means? Way. So stenography
0: is like secret code shorthand mm-hmm. for like, so you can, I could sit and listen to what Camion is saying. Take shorthand dictation. In little,
1: little like symbols, little, so symbols, little codes, And yeah. then he could type, I think it was like That's 120 unbelievable. per minute. 120 a minute is amazing. It, even if you're just typing the letters that you're looking at. It's crazy. But he's transferring a symbol From from words into letters and typing that. I was an assistant
0: and on a computer on a good day I could type like sixty minute sixty words per minute tops. Wow. He was doing that shit on one of those old rickety rackety like punch the button.
1: Genuinely, it's unbelievable. It's insane. I took typing in um, in high school. It was the only B I got. I'll just say that. Um, still gets <laughs> You're me. great Still grubber. gets me. Great grubber, great grubber. Uh, Mr. Annan would not round up my 89.9. Did you ask? I did ask. Great grubber. And he said no. But anyway, I... I like that he didn't. Thi- no, did he li- wouldn't. I, I like that he didn't. Wabi-sabi. I was like... There's a your B. <laughs> good. But I could do, I think at my... Like very, yeah. very best It's like 80 words a minute maybe. That's huge. But that that's was really like fast. when you're in typing class and you're focusing on nothing but typing and you're trying to get a good grade. Mm, that's still really and good. And then you walk out of there and you're like, that's the last time I'll type that fast. But holy crap. Yeah. Think of this 120, this guy.
0: Crazy. I think that was the number I think that was the number i'd have to go back and look but it was in the hundreds and it was in the it was good so um he got back from the war he was unable to find stage work in new york um but that's when he really would come to find his greatest fame not as a performer but as a producer and not on broadway Mm. but in the this is from wikipedia the entertainment deprived towns of Pennsylvania, and Ohio. Wow. And his Kenley Players expanded substantially over the course of the next 50 years. His summer stock productions blossomed into what Variety called the largest network of theaters on the straw hat circuit.
1: Wow!
0: Um, And he brought shows to... All these towns in Ohio, where Mm -hmm. I'm from, Dayton, also Akron, Columbus, Toledo, Cleveland, and Warren. And also they would take them up to Michigan, I believe. Um, But this is the the person who essentially originated star casting and stunt casting by putting Mm -hmm. highly recognizable film and TV stars into his productions. And while this is very commonplace today, he was really the first person who was – not just saying we'll use theater stars as theater stars. He was like, let's put a
1: TV star in there. I have a question though. Was this like, I'm curious if that was an intentional choice in terms of marketing. Yes. Not just, well, lucky for him, his theater friends had gone on to find TV success. I think
0: this was a real, um, Smart wow. choice yeah. that he made that really hadn't been done before. Fantastic. And not only were these shows crazy successful, it also makes for some netty cast lists. Um, this is actually isn't so crazy. Jane Mansfield in Bus Stop. So Whoa. Marilyn Monroe had played mm-hmm. the role in the film and he put Jane mm-hmm. Mansfield in it. Of course. Um, Merv Griffin in Come Blow Your Horn. Rock Hudson in Camelot. Wow. Robbie Benson as Che Guevara in Evita.
1: Come on. He
0: recruited Joe Namath to play the drifter in Picnic. Um, during uh, the run of the TV version of The Odd Couple, the stars of the TV show, Jack Klugman and Tony Randall, recreated their TV roles in the Neil Simon original how play. How did he get that such a coup? I'll tell you how he got people. Money. He was really smart about where he spent his money. Uh Um, But then again, also more traditional Broadway stars would also, uh, they would also appear regularly like John Raitt and Man La Mancha, Ethel Merman and Call Me Madam and Tommy Toon and Pippin. So it was this blend of Broadway stars, TV stars, film stars. John Kenley is also credited with introducing professional live theater to the Midwest. In addition to that, in 1950, he broke the color line in Washington, D.C. when he brought a production of The Barretts of Wimpole Street to Washington and advertising that all seats were available to any paying customer without regard for race. So at that time, Washington, D.C. was without a professional theater because in response to segregationist seating policies, the Actors Union, Actors Equity, would not allow its members to perform there. So interesting, yeah. So Actors Equity was like, "No, if you're going to segregate the theaters, our actors won't perform there." So there was not professional theater, and John Kenley hey. brought a play there and said, "Anybody who can pay for a seat can attend." And the police were afraid on opening night that there were going to be riots. So there was this huge police presence on opening night and John Kenley was like, the only people that are making a lot of noise are you Uh, police. police. yeah. So they did a sold out, trouble-free, two-week engagement and John Kenley was celebrated in the media Hmm. and by civil rights leaders because he had proven that... Yeah, we he, can coexist. That's right. In the theater. But he really was like this a showman and a mm-hmm. genius and he really knew the business. Um I was talking with my friend Kevin Moore and my friend Scott Stony who actually worked with him. No, uh, yes, they worked with no him. In, yes, yes, way. yes, 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 yes. And they said that at Memorial Hall, they would rack tickets, which means where, you know, they have all the cubbies in the box office Uh and they have all the tickets. And John Kenley would come in and look at the rack and see what was left over. And just by eyeballing it, he could say here's what the box office is going to be for the night. Just by seeing what tickets were remaining, and he would be accurate. Wow. So he was really numerate, right? And he was really a genius. And to your point earlier, he would pay like $30,000 a week for a star to appear in a show, but he would also... (laughs) <laughs> Kevin said he would bitch if you wanted that dollar rental because you were wearing your own shoes and actor's equity said you could have that dollar per $1 week rental for that. He
1: would like, he would buy uh. you on it. But so it was, but how did he make this math add up? Like you're charging a dollar, but you're paying your actor 35,000. Because he was Memorial Hall. Seats. It's huge. You're right. You're and right. if yeah. you
0: run that show for, to sold out or oversold mm-hmm. capacity for two weeks or three weeks. Okay. I
1: see. I see um, what you're saying. He
0: was, in, he was not losing money. And he also knew what audiences wanted. He would, so for instance, Kevin Moore was saying that um, he cast Lonnie Anderson in a production of Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. Hello. Lonnie Anderson from oh, yeah. in Cincinnati played Jennifer. What was her last name in that? Uh, jennifer i don't remember but i thought she was like just like the sexiest yes. and so
1: isn't she with burt reynolds for a long she time she was with mm-hmm. burt reynolds who's also
0: a star of kenley players productions Hello. yes burt reynolds dom DeLuise, all the entire cast of cannonball run um <laughs> but he um he put her in that when she was divorcing burt reynolds and so she was in the tabloids all the time. And so people well, wanted yeah. to hear from her. And yes. they wanted to see that. And she would Ooh, do I'm press and they would ask that. her about her, you know, mm-hmm. gossip about her divorce. So he was very canny, I think yeah. is the word. He knew, he what, he knew what he was what doing. Audiences wanted. And <laughs> it was also said that uh Kenley said. After the directors got through... So after the directors got through doing their work, the producer, that'd be John Kenley, would put on the panache. And so what he would do is cut out songs that he was like, oh, that really doesn't serve whatever star I've put in this production. And he would insert, for instance their hit song that they recorded. No
1: way. Yeah. Stop it. Yes.
0: So like.
1: <laughs> oh, no. He, it's so wrong. Yes. So, Kenley, so right. Kenley was
0: recalling a production of Neil Simon's The Pajama Game in which he edited language and added a dance scene to show off whoever the star's skill. So he would put like Ann Miller, a famous tap dancer, yep. in like Hello, Dolly, and then out of nowhere, just like a di- a giant tap break. How
1: did he get away with this? Well.
0: <laughs> Neil yes. Simon well. wrote him a letter saying do not change my dialogue John Kenley like people would send him cease and desists,
1: and he would go right on with and the then show. he
0: would uh, so there was a one story where I feel like it was Jack Cassidy maybe had recorded um, something like what I did for love from mm-hmm. chorus line they weren't doing chorus line but that stars hit they cut out a different, <laughs> oh, they cut no. out a song no. and they put, and he got it. So John Ken, they were like cease and desist. And so what they did is they put it, they corrected the show and then made the hit single, The Curtain Call. He was just like, by any means necessary. Wow. Yeah. He was really something. Wow. So as I was saying, <laughs> I was talking <laughs> with my friends, Scott Stoney and Kevin Moore, who worked with John Kenley back in the day. And they both grew up watching Kenley shows in Dayton and in Warren, Ohio, and they were doing a production of Fiddler on the Roof at the Westgate Dinner Theater, (laughs) and their director of Fiddler on the Roof also worked extensively with John Kenley, and he got, the director's name is Leslie, and I'm not sure if Leslie's a man or a woman, but Leslie got auditions for some of those Fiddler cast members With John Kenley. So they put them in like a van or something and they drive them up to Cleveland and they pull up to this sort of modest looking house in Seven Hills, which is a suburb, I guess, of Cleveland. And they're ushered in and they sit in this living room, which all looks very modest. And then one by one, they're sent down a long hallway to audition. And apparently, once you audition, you never go back to that front room. You go on to a different room. So my friend Scott is the first to go down the hallway. So he Mm -hmm. goes down the hallway in this modest home. And then all of a sudden it opens up into this huge room with a roof over a swimming pool. And the walls are a bright, vivid, blood red. And the ceiling was glass. And it smells of chlorine. And John Kenley is swimming laps in the pool. And he's not about to stop. Uh, oh. and, and in like just like turning and breathing, he says, just face the wall and sing, darling. <gasps> and he never stopped singing. What he meant, what, I was like, well, do you mean turn away, like face the wall like you're in punishment uh-huh. and sing into the wall? And they were like, yeah. Yeah. So it would bounce off right. the tiles. Right. Right. So my friend Scott was the first to go. He had no idea this is what he was stepping into. He said he was totally thrown by the whole thing, so he didn't do his best. And then he was guided to a different room to wait for all of his other friends to complete their auditions. So our friend Kevin makes the similar walk, smells of chlorine, gets in the room. John Kenley doesn't stop swimming. He says, face the wall and sing, darling. And at the end, Kevin finishes his song, and John Kenley says, Darling, you don't have an operatic voice. And Kevin says, Mr. Kenley, I didn't see any operas on your season this summer. (gasps) So he kind of, like, pushes back, made John Kenley laugh, and he was hired. Kevin got hired to do Shenandoah starring Ed Ames. And my friend Scott got hired that season as a pianist as well. So they had good, like, firsthand stories about how when they rehearsed, Um, at this giant theater in Akron called E.J. Thomas. I think it's like the E.J. Thomas Performing Arts Center. Holla, Akron. (laughs) There was this big lobby that ran all the way around the auditorium, and John Kenley would, had an adult-sized tricycle with a bell on it that he would ride around with his dog, a toy poodle that always wore blue eyeshadow and was never without its little purse.
1: Stop. You honestly... John Kenley
0: is an interesting person. What? So these are all just little incidental memories, but John Kenley gets even more interesting. I would just like to say now... I think that John Kenley's life would be a fantastic biography. I'm
1: just thinking like, or a a fantastic film. We'll get more more on that moment,
0: but it should be noted that the family members, there Mm -hmm. are many family members. They're still alive and they guard John's legacy and perhaps Uh, obscure his legacy. mm -hmm. He had an assistant who I think tried to write a book and I believe that got squished. Interesting. Because while I think it is remarkable and awesome, some members of his family may feel differently. Okay, It seems to be an open secret, not even a secret, that John Kenley was allegedly intersex. I believe his family might deny this, but this is according to many sources. Um, Merv Griffin in his autobiography, and also according to Barbara Eden, (laughs) TV's I Dream of Jeannie, intersex people are born with sex characteristics, such as genitals, gonads, and chromosome patterns that, according to the UN Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights, do not fit the typical definitions for male or female bodies. Okay. Intersex people have many different sex assignments and gender identities, and so there is no presumption that people on this list have any particular sex assigned at birth, nor any particular gender identity. Okay, hold up for a minute. Yeah. So I believe that this, this used to be called a her- you a hermaphrodite, but I don't think that's the language we use he, anymore. So
1: he had female body parts and. Or and male body parts. Correct. A combination. Correct. And that term is intersex. Intersex. Mm-hmm. And that term has, like, that's, an, that's a term that's used I think now. that is the
0: term, I think that is the, what we should be using now. Okay. I don't think we should, I, even though the word hermaphrodite has been used so much in association with John Kenley, I don't, I think that word is outdated. Yeah. 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 It's, out, it's outmoded. Yeah. So the term interest, but I, but sometimes when I quote people, I'll use the term hermaphrodite because that's the term they used.
1: Interesting.
0: Okay. Mm-hmm. So Barbara Eden, TV's I Dream of Jeannie, recalled John Kenley confiding in her that his parents had concluded it would be easier for him to go through life as male rather than as a female. So he allegedly spent the theater season in Ohio as John Kenley and the off-season living in Palm Springs or Florida as Joan Kenley.
1: Whoa. Yeah. That was by his choice. Uh-huh. He's like, all right, mm-hmm. then I'll, I'll head to Florida. Interesting. And in his unpublished memoirs,
0: Kenley wrote, people have often wondered if I am gay. Sometimes I wished I was. Life would have, would have been simpler. Androgyny is overrated. I wish that his autobiography would be published. I
1: was just gonna say why hasn't that according his family to won't...
0: everyone, everyone who knew him, and these people are legion, people who worked with him, he was one of the most wonderful, fascinating people mm-hmm. and a terrific storyteller. Mm-hmm. And he says at some point, people urged him, urged him to write his memoir. And he said, oh, I would really just want to write the really juicy stories. And they were like, yeah, <laughs> if what we're hearing, what are the juicy Like know, we, is... we feel like we've heard so many juicy stories. Um, so wait, I've got more questions. Ask Can we your pause questions. for a moment? Yeah. Okay.
1: So <clears throat> did he have a romantic life? I have not
0: seen any indication of
1: that. Because I'm just curious when he, that quote that you just read of like people ask me if I'm gay and I, and it would have been easier, Mm -hmm. but I'm, I'm just left wondering what does that mean? Because if he, what is, what would gay mean for him? Would it mean be being attracted to a man or being attracted to a woman? Because it sounds like he identified with I both. think it wasn't that clear cut for him. Which is like just makes him so ahead of his time. It makes me yes. just wish yes. that he yes. could rejoin us. But here's the thing. Mm. I
0: feel like he was ahead of his time and now the world is catching up with him. Mm-hmm. But I also think for the time that he was living in, he was living a pretty phenomenal life.
1: Absolutely. That he found a way to be himself. Yes. But know, I don't know under... if, to your question, I don't know if that, I,
0: I've seen no indication that that included like r- a romantic partner. I don't know. Yeah. That I don't yeah. know.
1: Um. But to this day, I think parents are still making those choices and I think they have to make them quickly in the hospital. If a baby is born, I think parents make super quick decisions about if they're born with both genitals from both mm-hmm. Gender, like sex organs. Yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah. I think parents make quick. My heart goes out. Calls. It can't be easy. I know it's heartbreaking.
0: Um, so one thing that I heard is you never saw John Kenley without a vest, a jacket, or a sweater vest, and the impression was that that was to cover up his breasts. At his 100th birthday party in Cleveland, there were a lot of um, Ken- Kenley Players alumni and stars that were there. And he was incredibly sharp. Like John Kenley like knew everyone's name who was there, like incredibly sharp. And Florence Henderson was there. You'll know her as Carol Brady. Mm-hmm. And she gave this long speech about her relationship with John. And it seemed like they were very close. And at the end of the speech, <laughs> Florence Henderson said she would always be jealous of John because his breasts were bigger than hers. Oh yeah. So th- I feel like there was this love and this acceptance yes. uh, that, I mean, I really think that's a Testament to
1: him that he created around he him. Literally built the world around yes. him. Yes. Who he wanted to be around. Yes. People who loved him, people who yes. he loved, respected yeah. where he could be his, like be his freest, be his full self. self. Yeah as an individual, it sounds like, but also as a creative, yes, you know, like he built a creative dream now, world. P.S. I don't know.
0: I didn't know John Kenley and I haven't read that unpublished autobiography and there may have been a pain there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I just think based on what I do know about him, I don't want to romanticize him, but I just feel like this was a very full life. Mm-hmm. Um, Merv Griffin, you know Merv Griffin from the talk mm-hmm. shows, also a star of Kenley Players talk productions. Uh, Merv Griffin fondly recalls: this is from his bio, his biography, autobiography rather. Uh, Merv Griffin fondly recalls it, his 1963 appearance and remembers being taken aback what he about what he did not know was an opening night tradition at the cast party, which I'm guessing might have been at Marion's Pizza, mm. but I could be wrong. <laughs> the first dance. <laughs> With the leading man was reserved for Mr. Kenley. So there was this opening night tradition that the leading man of the production would dance dance. with John Kenley. Apparently John Kenley was very direct. There were countless audition stories where he would talk to young auditioners. He would walk up to a little girl. He, you know, walked with a walking stick and he would walk up to a little girl and he would offer her... (laughs) (laughs) is walking stick and say take my cane and beat your voice teacher she's not doing a good job or he'd walk up to a dancer and say let me see your high kick and they'd show them their kick and he'd say no like this and still at like Mm. Barbara Eden said at 99 years old John could still do spectacular High kicks Wow! You know because he had this life as a dancer and a contortionist And you know he was remarkable In that way So apparently he produced a show Called the Cooch Dancer that was loosely based on his life. Remember when ah, I said he used to choreograph yes, for the burlesque ladies? Yes, that I also think would would provide a lot of clues to what his life was How like. Can we
1: get our hands the on the Cooch this? Dancer?
0: That when I was told that title, I was like, "Please say spell that. Let me make Co- sure I'm getting that. Am correct. I understanding you correctly? The Cooch Dancer Cooch. is the name of our next podcast. I don't know what it's about yet, but I the love couch.
1: it.
0: Um. I like it. Alan Alda said, I thought this was actually great. And it's the f- one of the few times that I heard people expressly talk about any sort of pain that he mm-hmm. may have experienced. Alan mm-hmm. Alda said, whatever pain John may have had in his private life, he always transmuted into laughter and playfulness, which is a wonderful lesson. And I think if I took anything away from that summer that he did Summerstock, stock, yeah. it's that. And I... I thought that was beautiful. Can you say
1: it again? It's what? If he took anything away, it's what?
0: It's that lesson that he observed John Kenley transmuting any personal or private pain into laughter and playfulness, mm. which I loved. Mm-hmm. And I love Alan Alda. Mm-hmm. Um, so Jay <laughs> Johnson, so love here. who starred on Soap as uh-huh. a ventriloquist. Do you remember? Did you watch Soap when you were little? Um, a lo- the movie? Okay, so- no, not no, soap no, dish. No. So oh, the yeah, it was like no. a comic soap opera. Yeah, no. So he played a ventriloquist who believed that his puppet Bob was real <laughs> and it just insisted that everyone treat Bob like a human person. <laughs> um when John Kenley turned 103 years old, Jay Johnson wrote this blog post that I found when I was searching for information about Amazing. John Kenley. So I'm going to read this from Jay Johnson's writing and okay. I've edited it, but My first Kenley show was in the early 1980s when Kenley was a mere 78 years old. Wow. I took an immediate liking to John Kenley. I thought he was charming, funny, smart, gentlemanly, and elegantly flamboyant. He was royalty, but certainly not a queen. John Kenley is just one of those rare people you can never forget. I love great storytellers, and he is one of the best. With a century of personal material to draw on, I was always trying to coax another story out of him. The first time I met John was in the rehearsal hall at The theater in Akron. On the first day of rehearsal, I was the only one who had not worked with John Kenley before. The director said that we were to start with our table reading and John would join us shortly. I believe we were several scenes into the show when the double rehearsal doors flew open. In walked a frail man in a cranberry vest, white shirt, and black pants. A navy blue tie was folded around his neck like an ascot rather than tied in a traditional knot. He was not young, but it was difficult to guess his age. His skin was almost iridescently pale without a trace of a wrinkle, like the face of a porcelain doll, smooth and almost translucent. He wore makeup, but he was not overdone. His thinning hair slicked back on his head, with the color of silver fading through the reddish orange tint. He certainly was not macho in his ways, but comfortable and confident with his own sexuality, whatever direction it went. The rehearsal stopped as every eye was on John Kenley. Silently, he walked the long side of the table opposite where I was sitting. As he rounded the far (laughs) end, I stood up to shake his hand since it seemed he was coming around the table to greet me. He did not look at me or even stop. <laughs> he glided past my outstretched hand without saying a word, uh, then exited the double doors. What? And then, in a dramatic move, he grabbed the frame with his hands, pulling himself backwards through the doorway, posing in an Erte-esque back bend with his head, 78 years old, with oh his God. head arched towards the table. He uh. said... Once I was meeting a man in the lobby of the Waldorf Astoria Hotel. On the phone before the meeting, he said, I don't know what you look like. How will I know it's you? John paused, then quickly added, I said to him, you must be kidding. And with that, (laughs) John Kenley disappeared through the door.
1: Oh, that's awesome. So John Kenley
0: (sighs) died on October 23rd, oh. 2009 in Cleveland, Ohio Whoa. at the age of 103.
1: Oh my gosh. How long did he do shows? He did shows for decades and decades, he, and decades and decades. Like was Sounds like in his 80s and 90s he was still doing it. He was unbelievable. I mean, I think when
0: he sort of like wound down from doing that, I think he was still supporting other Mm. makers. I think Mm -hmm. that he um, always supported like Tommy Toon. I think he was a big champion of Tommy Toon's and always supported his productions and even, you know, Wow! Helped produce some of those. I, I hope I'm not speaking incorrectly. Um, I know that I was speaking to my friends uh, Scott Scottstonians, Kevin Moore, and yeah. I know that John Kenley helped at, produce at least one production, like supported productions at their theater, The Human Race, in Dayton, wow. Ohio. Um, but listen, I think that this is such rich material. Mm-hmm. I'm oh I'm gosh. talking to. Todd Haynes. I'm talking to Christine Vachon. I am talking to filmmakers who make great films. This. I'm. I'm saying right here. This is. Yeah. This is world class source material. But the family. If the
1: family. If is the not family wanting to. I just feel
0: like this. The time is now. Yeah. That John Kenley was indeed. I'm so passionate about this. Yes. He was indeed ahead of his time. Yes. But like you were saying, I feel like he made a world where he could That's live right. and thrive and I'm really I'm really inspired by uh, the life that he created for himself. Too. And I don't know, I just think he made so much opportunity for other people as well.
1: I feel like you are right and what I would want his family to know is that This story can be told in such a way that his life is celebrated Celebrated. by millions of people. There is nothing to be ashamed of here. Uh, It is only a
0: celebration. I have to tell you, and let's just back it up. I just want to say that seeing those Kenley productions, and I know that I'm not alone in this. I know that John Kenley influenced the lives of the people that worked with him and for him, but I think he also influenced the lives of so many theater goers who would not have had a chance to see
1: the the theater that's right where we lived. He helps people feel things that they probably would not have felt.
0: And fall in love with the art form. That's right. I he really brought it to us. Connect people I owe a debt of gratitude to John Kenley and I So I thank you, John Kenley, but I also, Mm. I hope that there are artists that are listening to this now, established artists, emerging, emerging artists who will take this John Kenley torch and run, run,
1: run with it. 100%. Susan, I hope so too. I want someone, I want someone to write this story. It needs to be told. I
0: think so too. Oh, boy! It
1: sounds to me like someone out there is friends with his family and close enough to go to them and say, "Listen, we want to celebrate him. Yeah. We want the world to to be inspired by by him as they will be
0: oh I th- again, I think this person was ahead of their time, and the time is now oh God, the time is the time now. is now uh." Listen, Seriously. listen to me. I hope that all of this put another bunch of sparks in your spark file. Mm. If there is mm. a spark mm. that you would like for us to explore, or if you have a spark that you'd like to share, will you please email us at the spark mm-hmm. at gmail.com please. and be sure to subscribe to the shenanigan, wherever you get your podcasts, as the children say, subscribe, <laughs> rate and review.
1: If something here tickles your fancy and gets your creative juices flowing, now it's your turn, little ones. Take this spark and turn it into a flame.
0: You got to write it. You got to recite it. You got to design it. You got to refine it. You got to take it. Mm. And you got to make, make it.
1: make it. The spark file. Ah, the spark file, folks.
0: <laughs> when I bump into something that inspires me, I dump it in the spark file. Could be something that I want to make or how I want to be I pump it in my spark fire spark I jump into my spark fire spark Let's open up the spark fire Hi, friends. It's Susan Blackwell from The Spark File, your one-stop shop for creativity where our doors are open. And if you smell something delicious, that's because Laura Camion and I have been cooking up something special, something designed to make a big difference in people's creative lives. Enter The Brave Creative, a free five-day guided adventure to rediscover the vitality energy and possibility in your creative process whether you're a writer a performer a baker a candlestick maker navigating the creative process can be a bear but never fear there's power in numbers at the spark file so let's link arms and make the trip together it's may 13th through 17th 7 p.m eastern less than one hour per day and if you can't join live don't worry about it. You can watch the replay. Join us by going to thesparkfile.com to register. And hey, if you're not familiar with the Sparkfile, first of all, welcome to the podcast. Secondly, we work with hundreds of creatives of all different kinds who are ready to take their next big step. We help folks fear less and create more in a community that is so fun and vibrant. And if you have joined us before, know that we are going deep with the Brave Creative. So buckle up, Buttercup. It is going to be an awesome adventure. Go to thesparkfile.com to register, but do it soon because it all starts May 13th, thesparkfile.com,
1: register now.